Hi, everybody. I'm Jamin. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Sasha McCune, the director of Conifer Research. Conifer is a market research design and innovation company founded in 2001 and is based in Chicago, Illinois. They specialize in helping organizations gather deep insights and apply those insights in a timely manner to reach their goals. Prior to joining Conifer Research, Sasha was a graphic designer at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Sasha, thanks for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Yeah, great. Thanks for the great intro. I've done hundreds of interviews with today's top minds in market research. Many of them trace their role to Michigan State's marketing research program. Are you looking for higher pay to expand your professional network and to achieve your full potential in the world of marketing research? Today, the program has tracks for both full-time students and working professionals. They also provide career support, assisting students to win today's most sought-after jobs. In fact, over 80% of Michigan State's marketing research students have accepted jobs six months prior to graduating. The program has three formats. The first is a full-time, 100% online program that is taught over 12 months. It starts in January 2022. The second is a part-time 100% online program. It lasts 20 months, and it starts in May 2022. It's specifically designed for working professionals. And of course, they offer a full-time, 12-month in-person experience that starts in September 2022. All programs include real-world experience with full-time job placement support. If you are looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. That's B-R-O-A-D slash marketing. It costs nothing to get more details. Take the time. Invest in yourself. You are worth it. Class sizes are limited, so please check them out today. This episode is brought to you by Momentive. You may have heard that SurveyMonkey's parent company recently rebranded as Momentive, a leader in agile insights and experience management. The Momentive AI-powered insights platform is built for the pace of modern business so you can deeply understand your market, elevate your brand, and build winning products faster. Momentive offers 22 purpose-built market research solutions that incorporate an AI engine, built-in expertise, sophisticated methodologies, and an integrated global panel of over 144 million people to deliver meaningful insights in hours, not months. Momentive also has a team of market research consultants that can take on anything from research design to custom reporting as needed. So you can spend more time shaping what's next for your organization. To learn more, visit Momentive.ai. That's M-O-M-E-N-T-I-V-E dot A-I. Tell me about your parents. How do they inform oh, what you do today? I'm diving right in, huh? Here we go. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, yeah, that's an interesting topic. You had primed me for this a little bit. How did what my parents do inform what I do today? And that I was like, oh gosh, we're going to talk about this and I might get in trouble. So <laughs> remember, <laughs> the holidays are coming. I know. This is a really great question though. So for most of my life, I actually didn't know what my dad did. And not knowing, of course, being a kid, I filled in all the blanks in my own minds and made a, made a story that in the end didn't match the actual narrative. But what I did know about my father was that he was a military high-ranking officer and he majored in chemistry and none of that was interesting to me. 
So as you can imagine, as a teenage daughter of a military officer, my MO was as original as it gets, rebellion, basically. Like all rules were meant to be broken. Authority was meant to be challenged. Everything was meant to be questioned. And that was my reality because, well, I mean, that was how it went, right? Yes, I totally get it. Well, I guess what I learned in having that be my reality is that I had to be pretty clever with how I wanted to get around the authority of my dad. You know, I had a worthy adversary in in him. And the real kicker was that much later in life, I did find out what he did. And uh, this, this was uh, changed my perspective quite a lot, actually. I was in my 20s, and I was having my first scotch with him at my brother's wedding. And I uh, cracked a, a joke about war games. And I had read something in a book by Malcolm Gladwell. It was super fascinating to me. And I was just interested if he had ever heard of them by any any way, shape, and form. And it was only in my late 20s that I started learning that my dad actually was much more than a uniform, that he actually had worked in intelligence his whole career. And my life view really shifted from that moment as I began to learn that the way that my brain was wired for strategy was actually really connected to the way he thinks, even though we were completely polar opposites. So everything that I had always done about trying to find alternative pathways, trying to think about what the other side was thinking or doing, try to find ways to do things differently and break the rules. I always saw myself as being a polar opposite of my father. But then later, you know, and having this revelation and learning more about what he did, I realized we're actually doing the same thing. Just my opposition wasn't Russia. It was, you know, understanding different users or different areas of the business, right? And creative problem solving. So I always found this kind of coming full circle as being really interesting moment in my journey as I kind of began to understand how my own wiring of my brain and DNA play a role in how I think and work and operate. It's interesting that you connected that so late in life. Was the reason that your dad was kind of withholding his level of involvement because of security reasons? Yeah. I mean, well, it was as top security as it gets, as you can imagine. You know, later in life, I found out that he was actually working in chemical weaponry almost his whole career and that those things were around me most of my life and I just didn't know. So there was a lot beneath the surface that, you know, without having the context of what was going on, you learn that there's more beneath the surface than you would ever know in pretty much any situation, any scenario, your upbringing, you know, what someone's doing, what they're presenting to the world. And I have in in research, that's what I do. I, I dig, I uncover those things. And you know, it's a natural part of the way I think to to find those things. But it was hiding in plain sight in my own life, which was really interesting. And in hindsight, you know what? All those times I thought I was being so clever as a teenager, breaking rules, forging my own path. Let's be honest, my my dad was 100% using spycraft on me and counter surveillance <laughs> the entire time. And I said, no chance, no chance. <laughs> 
as a father, I'm envious of your father. I wish I had those tools at my disposal. He could probably give you some tips, although he's not as tech savvy these days anymore. But uh, <laughs> get on tracking that phone early. That's my yeah. advice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting segue into really our topic to j- today, which is around Gen Z, right? When I grew up uh, in the 80s, there was literally no... I remember I was 12 years old and there was a gas station that was about two miles away. They had cigarettes and Playboys. Yeah. And my friends and I were always like, gosh, I really want to get cigarettes. I really want Playboys. But, you know, obviously we're of age to be able to do either of those two things. And so we in our very being very clever, I wrote in my own hand, please let my son buy a six pack of beer, camel non filters and a Playboy. And I had like, I forget what it was, $20 in cash, right? So I, I roll up on my bicycle and my friends are all waiting outside because they're scared to death. And I slide the note across. Just I can imagine myself just completely peaked and sweating. And the guy, I remember he just fell down laughing. And of course he sold all the things to us because it's the 80s. <laughs> but now like everything's at your fingertips. It's like, Kids have a completely, and you said it, you know, yourself, there's like a completely different framework for how to access the things that you maybe shouldn't be accessing, um, et cetera. So let's start with that question. How is Gen Z different from previous generations? Yeah. You know, I, I also share that sense of like my childhood was marked by this feeling that it was a free reign too. Like we could do anything we wanted because there was not very many rules put in place yet because the world was actively changing. And when thinking about how Gen Z is different for me, you know, I'm definitely full on geriatric millennial, like at the <laughs> And I love that this has become a thing because I, you know, I felt always felt more Gen X, but technically I'm at the top of the millennial category and now there's actual term for it. We're geriatric. I'm fully embracing it. But, you know, I was thinking back to, you know, my generation and, you know, I'm thinking, how are we different? And when I think back, you know, connecting to also my upbringing and my story of my father being in the military, prior to 2020, I was really grasping at straws to understand what was going to be the event that defined Gen Z. Because I have that for me as a geriatric millennial September 11th was cataclysmic in my life. I lived in DC when it happened. It was a very present in, there was a before and after everything from September 11th, amplified by the fact that, you know, I lived within, directly within a community that it affected. And Gen Z hadn't had that yet. I was like, what is it going to be? Politics? Because yes, there was all sorts of insanity in the last five years before the pandemic, but I was wondering what it was going to be. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, okay, this is going to be it. Like, this is going to be the generational trauma that defines Gen Z in a very different and distinct way. But I also want to caution in that, like, we still don't know yet exactly how those long-term behaviors and habits are going to be affected by the pandemic. You know, from what I've seen so far, There's been a big difference in almost like a divergence in how Gen Z people have responded to the pandemic. So there there aren't yet blanket claims we can make 
about the impact it's having and is going to have. But I've definitely seen uh, very different responses in terms of resilience and excitement to get back out in the world. And then also on the flip side, this like heightened amount of fear and anxiety, grief being present and people still working through the implications of the whiplash of you know, losing certain parts of your life, certain milestones of your life, and things that are really important rites of passage for teenagers and young adults that maybe weren't happening in the same way or at the same time or at the same pace that they would have happened for me in my life. Yeah, that was interesting. And my household went through that with, I had a son who graduated high school during that time. And and it was a completely different, (laughs) that was a completely different experience. Proms canceled, like all the normalcy of childhood is really completely upended. I wonder uh, when you think about like post pandemic in, in comparing th- that with post 911, you know, we saw TSA come out in the US anyway, out of 911, right? So like travel completely changed in, in America. What, what do you see coming out of COVID? Well, I think similarly to what you just hit on there with the story that you were just telling that this event is also marking the end of childhood for some people. And that's going to be interesting to think about. But in terms of this generation, one of the biggest things is that they are being taught that their world is full of uncertainty. And they're living in this heightened state of uncertainty, becoming really reactive to every given moment. One of the things we've seen actually in research studies we've done is that it's really difficult for these younger folks to make decisions and carve a path forward because they're living on such a short-term basis in that reactive state. They're coping with all of the uncertainty in our world, which we've had a lot of in the last five years. So you kind of can't blame them, but they're not as ready to carve a specific set or path forward. They're not ready to say, this is what I'm doing next and have a lot of conviction in it and know that that's a long-term thing. Things seem very kind of day-to-day, month-to-month in that short term because there isn't a set path anymore because of all the uncertainty. It used to be you graduate, you go to college, you get a job, you move out. Like There's a sequence of events and things that you should do to adult and to be an adult. But what is normal in that process of shifting from you know, being a, a kid to being an adult and entering the world, given the context of the last five years, especially for those Gen Zers in that, you know, 16 to 22 window where a lot of change is happening in a short amount of time in a very critical amount of their time in the state and environment that we've been in in the last two years. How much do you think, obviously you have the, the crisis of COVID, but then you also have the rise of the gig economy in, in full. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting, right? In terms of just the amount of options that can, I like your kind of, you go from A to B to C in your career, right? Or in your life, which is a very kind of 40s, 50s framework. And that obviously is at fault, but it was pretty stable. And nowadays, I mean, my, thinking of my oldest child, you know, he has two to three different jobs that he's doing at any given point. uh, Yeah. Plus his regular job. Oh yeah, totally. That's, absolutely happening. And in some ways, it's giving these kids an opportunity to explore and to kind of put out feelers and try things in ways that we weren't 
told was okay when we were young. We had to pick a lane, right? Right. And these kids are having the opportunity to do that. And in some ways, I see this behavior getting them ahead in a lot of spaces. You know, they're ahead in terms of their emotional intelligence. I find that they're very in tune with their emotions and very mm-hmm. able to talk about them and navigate them and uh, work with them. And then sometimes it means they're behind in their depth of knowledge or in their mastery of certain things um, or in their desire to kind of, to kind of commit and uh, go all in in a certain space and only do one thing and, and master that thing. Have you gotten in your research, have you gotten any sense that their lack of mastery is, and obviously that kind of fits against the um, Gen Xer point of view, right? Mm-hmm. Which are oftentimes the parents. So have, have you gotten any sense that there's a increased amount of anxiety because they're not fitting into the mold? I don't know if it's anxiety. I think they, um, I think they have a lot of pride and autonomy in doing things their way. I think the best way of talking about this is actually in terms of like, since we're talking a little bit about the concept of mastery and expertise, one thing that we know from from past research studies we've done and interacting and comparing cohorts is older consumers, myself included, geriatric millennial and up, we tend to be a little bit more traditional and top down, especially when it comes to knowledge and trusted sources. You know, there's weight behind a degree to something or a, a specific job title or time in a role and the expertise gained from having mastered something. Gen Z, they're much more horizontal in the way they're engaging with sources of trust and influence. And that means that the trust and influence is really coming from that social sphere. It's much more casual. And their source of influence around them, word of mouth, their friends, their community, their core network, is very much so closer to that sphere of influence. And people outside of that sphere of influence is a source of authority that they sometimes question more than trust. So expertise is really being questioned and challenged in their networks, in the way that they interact with brands and companies. And I see this as being a really interesting area that brands are going to have to contend with just in terms of sales forces and service models and even the education landscape and how people think of sources of authority and expertise within higher education. Huh. That's I, I think that the higher education thing is, is interesting because as an employer, I'm caring less and less about where you went to school and what degrees you have and more about your ability to actually like get work done. Yeah, exactly. And I think that good employees are showing us that they're emphasize, re-emphasizing that in terms of what, what they have to offer. It's, much more about the creativity, the flexibility, the adaptability. Yeah, their ability to problem solve and show up, etc. What are some common mistakes that brands are making when relating to and connecting with Gen Z? Yeah, I think one of the first ones is a lack of understanding about what matters the most to Gen Z. And this is also another area where they're really different from other groups. So One thing I've noticed is that Gen Z, they really want to push the boundaries on taboos. And a lot of it is driven by a desire to normalize taboos. 
So you've probably seen this already in things you've noticed in the world, mental health, gender norms, advocating for specific types of things, high amount of sensitivity and intentionality around pronouns and identity. It's not just that it's a part of their vocabulary. It is like a really critical part of their vocabulary. But the thing is, they've developed their own vocabulary and almost left some of the other generations behind. We're not almost even in on what some of it means, right? And not acknowledging that language and what's going on there is going to be really important when it comes to communicating and reaching this audience. That is so interesting. So it's down to nomenclature. Nomenclature and also just like speaking the talk and walking the walk. That's that's the other thing is that they're going to want to see evidence that brands have some level of authenticity and are aligned with their brands and values. And that is going to require a lot of work for some brands to do. They might not even know what authenticity looks like or means for this audience when it comes to their brand. So you ask like, what is a mistake, like a common mistake? I'd say not doing the research in the first place is a huge mistake. Uh, assuming, assuming that businesses know what's going on in the minds and hearts of these folks is uh, probably a miss because they're, they're an actively changing group and they're actually rejecting a lot of the formal components of what has historically worked when it comes to marketing, when it comes to service models, when it comes to you know selling things or promoting things. So they can see through a lot and they're not going to fall for it. They have these really high standards for authenticity and value alignment. And I think a lot of work is going to need to be done to make sure that brands kind of have the right strategy and approach for working within that new framework. Authenticity is something that I hear in every conversation I have with Gen Z or among yeah. experts like yourself. Where do you think that stems from, that uh, need to connect with the brand beyond just the product or service that you're buying, but down to like the brand's core values? Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's two things. First, creativity is, is really big in this audience. You've probably seen evidence of that just in the craziness that comes out of TikTok, right? Creativity is coming through in everything they do. It's this, these condensed little nuggets of content and storytelling. Video communication is so native for them. But interestingly, with what they're creating and generating and consuming, it's no longer about this highly polished, hyper-edited point of view. They're, they're really stripping away the rose-colored glasses on a lot of things. If you actually dive into content generated by or getting a lot of traction with Gen Z, what you'll notice is that the content is straight to the point. They're getting to it. They're, it's meaty. It's raw. It's often packed with humor and vulnerability and emotion. And they're doing that within like 120 characters, right? Like the, the equivalent of what we would have been doing on Twitter the difference is on Twitter, when we sort of Twitter was coming into its heyday, Twitter was all about short and pithy and sometimes shallow. The opposite is happening with Gen Z. They're going straight for the gut punch, right? Packed, packing it with that sense of humanity. And that is where the authenticity is coming from. And that's where they're looking for it because they're also creating it all the time in their own content. 
I was speaking with somebody earlier today, actually interviewing a project manager, and uh, she was talking about how she's not on TikTok. She's, uh, <laughs> I believe, 24 years old, but she does consume tons of TikTok content yep. through Insta and YouTube. And it is interesting how TikTok has become a content creator's dream come true. Yeah, it is. And actually, uh, this is on my list of common mistakes. And I'm so glad you brought this up, assuming that all of Gen Z is creating the content. Because not all of them are actually creating it, but they are passively absorbing a lot of it. So they're not all the makers. Like any generation, there's usually a subset of that creative horsepower happening, but it is getting absorbed and socialized. And social influence, again, is it's, it's so horizontal. It's in that sphere of influence. It's staying within that core network, which is really important part of that authenticity story. So interesting. The way that you tell a story is the way that I tell a story, excuse me, has completely upended in the last six months since I've been using TikTok more. I mean, it's just, they are teaching me how to communicate. Yeah. And I I mean, brands are going to have to listen and learn. I think market researchers do too. Like there's <laughs> right there's such a hu- there's such a human story that they're able to connect in a like you said in a 3 minute or 30 second way that you know would take us normally 80 slides and a bunch of words and and things but I mean you know they're just like cutting right to it but in a way that in an, and in a way that sticks. Yeah, you mentioned market researchers too. I mean, yes, absolutely. I think that If you want to get a bunch of Gen Z in a room, in a focus group, you're going to fail. You know, (laughs) we need to let them tell their own story because they're showing us that they're good at it. And it's something that they're native in now. Telling video narratives have been a part of their world. It's not new to them. They're recording videos of themselves all the time. And one of the things that I often talk about when it comes to scoping research and doing research with this audience is you you really have to make the time to let them be creative, which means opening the door to having them do things different ways, letting them use technology, the things that they're best at, and giving them the permission and getting the permission from them to have them bring us bring us into their lives and show us what's going on and how they think. And a lot of times we've done these really interesting studies where we make the studies fun. Like we really want them to be fun for them, engaging. And we try to build a relationship with them as more of a friend. You know, if you're taking a compliance mindset with the research of getting completes, you're going to fail with this audience. They want to feel like the research is connected to their shared purpose or vision or goals. They want to feel like research is giving back to them in some way, that they're getting something out of it from the experience or learning about themselves. We've done research studies with participants on the topics of you know, money and health and all of these topics that might not be very fun to talk about, especially for younger people. Um, who don't have a financial portfolio and a financial strategy yet, and they're still just winging it. But if you go about the research in the right way, they will open up and also learn something about themselves along the way and get a lot of value from that. And from us watching them, how watching how they learn, we get to learn what they're going to do next. So interesting. 
Let's say I start a brand. Give me a piece of advice. What's one piece of advice that you would give a brand who wants to connect with Gen Z? Yeah, I think it's going to come down to goal alignment. Brands doing a little bit more heavy lifting to make sure that they have their own values straight and they know how to communicate them to the audience that they're hoping to serve. And that's going to require a lot of research, understanding, listening, um, and also some probably some tough change. One thing we didn't touch on too is that when it comes to things that Gen Z notice and think about, which were never things that I noticed and thought about when I was that age, is when it comes to a company's sourcing and supply chain issues and even their workplace policies and work culture issues. These were invisible to us when we were that age. They were not talked about. um, They were not present in the news and the media. And because of the last few years in particular, Gen Z have come to quite care quite a lot about some of these issues around environmental issues, sourcing issues, sustainability, the impact a company is having on humans in the workforce and with work culture. So they're not just buying the product. They also need to believe that the things that surround the product within the the company culture and company practices are meeting their values and speaking to their values in some way. And that's going to be a hard lift for some brands. Who's doing it well? Who's doing it well? Oh my gosh. I don't know who's doing it well. I can t- I could, I can think of a lot of people who aren't doing it well, but I'm not going to say those things. Right? I, I didn't ask that question. Uh, isn't it funny how my mind goes to the worst case scenario? Yeah. <laughs> I did just see last night two ads um, on TikTok, which stood out to me. One is McDonald's and the other is a Taco Bell commercial. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I felt like they were right on brand. I, I thought one was really well done and the other one felt more advertising. But there's definitely like an attempt to connect. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some interesting experimentation happening uh, that I see. You know, I'm still not totally sure what's working. And I think that has a lot to do with the age that Gen Z is at right now. You know, at, at that 18 to 22, you're just entering the prime of their buying power. They're just getting there. So we still have a lot of measuring and exploring to do and figuring out what's working and moving the lever. But the next two years are critical for that, for sure. One of the things I'm seeing a lot of, um, specifically on TikTok, uh, but Insta as well, is micro brands leveraging yeah. influencers in for just like straight up infomercials. <laughs> yeah. The power of the influencer is is a little worrying actually. I'm like part of me wonders if it's going to crash sometime, you know, maybe not. I it, it's a really fascinating space because at the same time people are also leveraging influencers in the wrong way and then people are seeing through it. So there's not a lot of consistency yet about the role of the influencer and what what has the power and what doesn't. But one thing I have noticed is that technology is actually not driving behavior as much as it was before in past generations. So, you know, you mentioned the platform, but like what we haven't talked about is, you know, the the device itself. The device was so important for us when we were younger. For Gen X and millennials, technology 
the device changed our behavior. It was an intervention in and of itself in terms of driving change. But technology is so saturated for the Gen Z generation, they're they're not actually engaging with it in the same way. It's not driving behavior. It's not changing behavior. It's like a passive element. It's so ubiquitous that innovation in tech is actually becoming more of a gimmick than something that's changing them. So I'm really curious to see what happens with all of the change that's happening in the social influence sphere, because that seems like it's working a lot harder than technology and device and product is right now. The other thing that's interesting is Gen Z's, I saw a statistic recently that 70% of Gen Z are stating that they prefer an in-store experience versus a, a virtual experience, right? So it's almost this like counterculture of how they've been cast. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I don't know yet, which we know the pendulum swings every few generations, right? And part of me really wonders what's going to happen in these two years after pandemic really feels over because that's where the pendulum is likely to swing, right? That it might go that direction. They might create whole new formats, whole new engagement points. A lot might have to change, but I don't think what's behind that statistic is really misleading. And and I think your point too is that it's not going to be the same old. It's not just going back to the retail settings of before. It's going to be something different that's going to need to drive them. And I think that's the unknown part. We don't know quite how it's going to get executed or need to be executed, which is really interesting. Last question. What is your personal motto? Huh. Um, let's see. That's a funny one. I'm not totally sure I have one, although I'm sure my team could make a list of all the crazy things I say all the time. <laughs> like, what is it? Short and pithy. I'm always saying that. Or like tiny box, tiny answer. Uh, which is a, just a funny way of saying, like, if you don't give people the space and time and freedom to share, you're only going to get a narrow answer. Mm. But yeah, or if if not those, it would probably be something from Brene Brown, who's just amazing on all things emotions, vulnerability in the workplace. My guest today has been Sasha McEwen, the director of Conifer Research. Thank you, Sasha, for joining me on the Happy Market Research podcast today. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. Everyone else, I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, screen capture, tag me on social media or Sasha, and I will send you a free t-shirt. Have a great rest of your day.